Hello everyone, Bob Main here with another episode of the Handgun World Podcast. A practical show done by a practical guy, and that is me. This week, I have a real good guest, and I just want to kind of put it out there that it's been a long time since I've had this guest on, but what you are going to hear is about practice techniques, specifically dry practice for concealed carriers, even competitive shooters. And it's a subject that's talked about quite a bit, but my guest and I broke that subject down and really made made it make sense, especially for if new shooters. If you're a new shooter, even some of you who are experienced veteran shooters, you're probably going to get some good ideas from this episode about how to dry practice. Some people call it dry fire practice. We called it dry practice for a reason, which you're going to hear soon. Please remember this show is only supported by generous listeners like you who support me on Patreon. I want to give a special shout out to all of my Patreon members that support me. Now, thank you very much. You make this show possible. I don't have any sponsors on this. I keep it commercial free. Please consider supporting the show. Join the Patreon page for Handgun World for as little as $3 a month. Check it out at patreon.com slash Handgun World, of course, a comment or a link actually will be in the show notes. Okay, that's it for the introduction. John Payne is my guest, and here we go. Well, everybody, I've got a special guest, uh, a very longtime friend of the show. John Payne is back. Welcome back, John. Thank you, Bob. It is good to have you back. It's been a long time. It's been a little while, and it's good to be back. Yeah. You know, uh, life is just getting in the way for both of us, isn't it? It's quite good at doing that. (laughs) But we never lose our passion for talking about self-defense and shooting and all that. I don't, and I'm sure you don't, and thank you for being here. Oh, not a problem. You know, I'm going to enjoy this. Yeah, I want to set the context for this. Uh, John and I were talking a couple days ago, and he, we, he, John called me up, and we were just chatting about a whole bunch of different stuff. And um, one thing came to another, and we, the, the subject of dry fire practice came up. So we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about that. So, John... Here's what I want to ask. Um, how often do you dry fire practice? Daily. Daily. Okay. Now, we, you and I were talking a couple of days ago, and you mentioned you got, you're, you're carrying something a little bit different these days. Instead of your, your old gutter snipe G26, you got something different, right? Right. Right. What is that? That, uh. It's a, uh, a 1974 Colt Detective Special. Wow, that is awesome. <laughs> Man, I'm jealous. Now, are you dry fire practicing with that? Oh, I do, yes. Okay, good. So you dry fire practice daily. You're practicing with a, 19, with a revolver made in 1974. So tell us how you do that. Uh, the majority of, of my dry fire with it is going to be, of course, uh, manipulating the double action trigger. Uh, but I mean, it, there's so much more to it than just that. Uh, I start with with the uh, drawing from concealment. Okay. I try to do about a hundred reps a day drawing from concealment. And how are you concealing it? How are you? What's your method of draw? I uh, carried appendix. Okay. And so, yeah, I have to clear a uh, closed front cover garment uh, to access my grip and begin the draw stroke. You're carrying an appendix. What kind of holster are you using? Uh, Galco, maybe, uh, or 
Okay. The Anki, one of the two is a, a way they call it a pistol pocket, a little inside the waistband. I've got a little inside the waistband uh, reinforced. Uh, is that leather? And, yes. Leather, okay. And and I also have a, uh, a right-handed uh, pancake-style holster that is uh, pancake-style and cross-draw both. <laughs> this, is this is great. John Payne's got a 1974 revolver Colt Detective Special in a leather holster appendix. Uh, this is great. Uh, is this the same John Payne that I used to talk to? <laughs> it is this the is... same John Payne. Um, <laughs> you know, I've always been a, a fan of uh, some of the small revolvers. Yes, and I know. In in my not so humble opinion, I always felt the Colt uh, Detective Special series, whether it be Special, whether it be a Cobra, um, a Colt Agent, that they were uh, almost the pinnacle of the uh, Snubnose Revolvers. Yeah, yeah, and and you you're right about that. And so I don't blame you at all, and I think it's really cool. You know, so much talk out there about all of our our wonderful nine millimeters with with uh, red dots on them, and and nineteen round magazines and stuff like that. And it's great to talk about old Colt revolver carry. This is cool. Now you got me wanting one of these uh, old revolvers. I I, I got to have. Just one. so happens, you know, Colt's got them back in production now. I know that. I know that. I know that. Okay, so let me back up a little bit. There's a question I forgot to ask before we got started. What, in your opinion, is the importance of dry fire practice? Well, to me, the the, the most uh, important thing about dry fire practice is you're, you're practicing your draw stroke, you're practicing your manipulations, you're practicing everything but managing recoil. Yeah, you're right, and you're doing it for free. You're doing it for free, um, but at the same time, uh, to in my opinion, uh, the dry practice is more important than than live fire. More important than live fire. Yes. Okay. Why more do you feel that way? Fire. Why do you feel that way? Uh, because of the gun handling skills that you that you reinforce while doing the dry practice yeah that's right that's right the the drawing from the holster the drawing from your carry position the the grip and your trigger press your follow-through without moving the sights or uh while uh, either superimposing a dot on a target or letting the the dot go fuzzy uh-huh okay now, on your detective special, uh, I'm assuming it's the kind of the old-fashioned, just um, steel-bladed sights, right? Fixed steel sights that, Fixed, yeah. In, in in the day, it was claimed they were an improvement over the Smith and Weston J-frame sights. Uh, both of them are are uh, less than adequate. <laughs> Yeah, but you and so how many different or how many times do you practice your draw stroke? I try to get in a hundred reps a day. That's amazing, hundred reps a day, and, and of course you're presenting the gun, you're pressing the trigger very smoothly. I've seen oh, you I shoot. Don't, I don't press the trigger every on every draw stroke. You don't press it on every draw stroke. It, it, okay. No, it de- it depends on on what my mindset is. Uh, what I am or what I am uh, actively engaging in my mind, kind of like doing a kata or, or pumse, hyung, whatever you want to call it. Depends on uh, what you want to work on, right? Right. It, it all de- depends on the amount of emotional content. Okay. Good. Good answer. Thank you very much. Um, I think it's very important that you're practicing your draw. And you're practicing how to get that out quickly and how to get it out quickly from the holster that you're using. Because don't you think, I mean, that's vitally important. you got to get the gun out. You've got to get the gun out. I'm not real concerned about being fast. 
Okay. I uh, never really have been real concerned about being fast. Uh, and I've usually fall pretty solidly in the camp of uh, timing is more important than speed. So you're concerned about your timing. Uh, I'm concerned about my timing. I'm concerned about getting the, the, the pistol uh, presented and uh, being able to do that without having to think about it. Yeah, and this all brings back so many memories um, because you're a Suarez International instructor. And you know what? This is all the all the stuff that you've taught in the past. It is. It is. But, uh, you know, the most basic of structures that are made correctly are, are made on a strong, solid foundation. Yeah, correct. You're right. And the foundation is dry fire practice. It, it is. It is not just dry fire practice. It's dry practice. Dry practice, like I said, I don't, yeah. I, I, I don't engage the trigger every time uh, I uh, am working the draw stroke. or I, mean, I can be simply working on establishing my grip in the holster and then presenting to you know the uh, imagined threat in a straight line. You know, John, I'm so glad you said that. Um, so I have a habit of saying dry fire practice. So I'm going to call this episode dry practice. And from now on, I'm going to try to call it dry practice because you're so right about that. Uh, you don't always have to practice pressing the trigger. There's a lot of other things that you need to be paying attention to, isn't there? There is. There is. And, and I, I didn't invent that in any no. shape or fashion. I probably learned it from from Gabe or someone else. Right. Uh, but the, the reason I say it the way I do is because as we've been taught, words mean things. They do. Yeah. They do. Um, so let's take a moment. I'm going to come back to asking you about dry practice, but let's take a moment to, uh, to understand why does John Payne today carry a Colt detective special? I have uh, developed some some issues with my right hand. Okay. Um, and we uh, we are pretty solid in the doctrine at, at uh, with Suarez Tactics of uh, you don't have a a strong hand and a weak hand. You have a, a right hand and a left hand. Correct. That you should be able to to fight from either side. And uh, I, I do have some issues right now that we're, we've got appointments to get it taken care of. The, the surgeon uh, is is 99 percent sure that they know what the, the issue is and it's going to be a minor surgery with some rehab. But in the meantime, I don't have the dexterity with my right hand that I always have. So does the revolver make so, it easier to deal with your lack of dexterity? Less moving parts, yeah. Uh, not worried about slide uh, manipulations, yeah. Um, your grip can be more for uh, can be more for, forgiving on a revolver than it can a semi-automatic. Yeah. Uh, you and I have both witnessed people uh, have issues with their wrists and their grip strength, and they limp wrist the pistol, That's thus true. robbing that spring of its inertia and causing malfunctions. Yep. Um, stoppages and what have you. So, uh, in that uh, that made a thought, I decided if I had a, a revolver of what I considered to be a reasonable capacity, and I could carry uh, at least one reload, um, mm-hmm. and you know it had uh, some heft to it and whatnot, uh, without being too heavy, without being too light. I've got the air weights. I've shot the scandium weights. Uh, I've shot that that monstrosity. Uh, I can't remember the exact model number, but it's like a, a three twenty seven something. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Smith and Bob, it's Smith and Wesson three twenty seven. It's scandium frame, but an eight shot. Yeah, that's a that's a big one. Right, and it, it's it, it's got a round butt, wood stocks, and a barrel. The the barrel itself is covered with a barrel shroud and uses a nut similar to the older uh, Dan Wesson's. But, you know, the barrel is like an inch, inch and a half long. 
and when you shoot magnums out of that thing, it's 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 just punishing. Yeah. Yeah. Or even you know shooting 125 grain uh, magnums out of a a little J frame Smith or some magnum. You oh, know, no that thank sucks. You. It sucks. Yeah, I, um, no thank you for I, me. And, too. and and I start wondering if the juice is worth the squeeze. Um, it's not. But with the six shot Colt, you know, small frame six shot Colt, I've got six shots of 38 special. I don't care if it's 38 special plus P or not. Uh, the loads that I tend to like are a little bit warmer, but still not, uh, anything like a three seven Magnum. And, uh, it's easy to carry ammo for it, whether I'm, I'm carrying a, uh, a speed loader or, uh, a speed strip or both. Yes. So, uh, and I've always got other options nearby. So, yes. And, I think it's really cool. And so the lack of dexterity plays into your decision. Um, it's easier. Like you said, the grip is uh, more forgiving. And you don't even have to worry about a magazine or magazine malfunctions or, or practicing that either. No, and it's got, I, I would have to estimate in the neighborhood of about a, between an 8 and 10 pound uh, double action pull that's extremely smooth. Yeah. I would think it probably is being, first of all, that old and probably shot a ton of times. Uh, it, it hasn't been shot a ton of, ton of times. Oh. I was one of the first. I'm the first person to shoot outside the factory. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Okay, but you got a nice smooth trigger on it. Well, it, it was uh, older technology, different technology, uh, not using uh, coil springs, but using leaf springs. Um, you could take, as the Colt armors and gunsmiths will tell you, you just can't take parts out of one and put them in another. Mm-hmm. You know, these old revolvers were all fitted by hand. Yeah, awesome. And yeah. so when you get something like that that is fitted by hand, it takes longer, a longer time. It costs more, but at the same time, you, you can feel that quality in the trigger press itself and that smoothness, uh, you know, it's just one of those things. Well, yeah, back in 1974, the manufacturing process was was not what it is today. And that's actually no. probably a good thing. And, you know, and some things have been improved. There's there's people that complain about the new Colt Python and new Anaconda. I've shot them both, and I, I adore them. Matter of fact, the, this version of the Anaconda is, is way above the old, older style that was based on the uh, Trooper Mark V lock work or, or whatever it was called. I think that's what it was called, but I'm not 100% sure. It's been a, been a few minutes since I read that manual. Yeah. So what's today's version of your detective special? I believe they're calling it the Cobra again, even though it's steel framed. Okay. You've got the Cobra, the Night Cobra, the King Cobra. I think the King, King Cobra comes in either a fixed sight or adjustable sight versions and the one i'm talking about um is a carbon copy of the uh colt magnum carry and those are based on the detective special and those are all snub nose oh you the king cobra i think you can get up to a four inch barrel from the pictures i've seen and the cobra probably uh, is a now yours is about the coat go ahead i said yours is what a two and a half inch barrel something like that two two and a half okay yeah that's that's what i would like is is one that's about two or two and a half I, i've got that one i would love to have uh one just fall on my lap back from the uh, i believe the second generation uh colt revolvers the uh, the agent mm-hmm. that has the reduced grip frame uh a factory installed hammer shroud uh, the ejector rod is still uh, uncovered like the traditional Colt. Uh, it holds six shots, but it, it weighs about the same as a, uh, a 642-2. You know, it's mm. amazing. Yeah, that's a good that's a good weight. That's the Colt Agent Gen 2? The older Colt Agent. Yeah. The Agent and the Cobra, there wasn't a whole lot of difference between the two. 
I think the primary difference was the length of the grip frame. Mm-hmm. Wow. How far they've even come on revolvers now, too, you know, with all these polymer specials and all this stuff, even with revolvers. I've seen a few, I've seen a few of those different hybrid animals. Yes. <laughs> my, my first thought comes to mind are the Rugers, the Ruger LCRs. The LCRs, and, well, the first image I got was uh, uh, Taurus Poly Judge. Is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. You know, it really feels better than the full-size judge. Really? Oh, it should. I don't know about shooting it, but I know about – I've, I've uh, done some dry practice with one. And uh, and it, to me, it felt better in the hand than, than the uh, the regular judge. You know, that, that uh, answer for a non-existent problem. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's been a lot of those, hasn't there? Yeah, there's been a lot of those things sold, though. So, uh, I mean, yeah. props to them. Yeah. Somebody, you know, gave the impression of a better mousetrap. Well, let's get back to the subject of dry practice for a minute, uh, several minutes, actually. So when do you choose to actually press the trigger and make it dry fri- dry fire practice? When I intend to press the trigger, when I'm constantly thinking about my side alignment, sight picture, breath control, trigger press, Follow through, trigger reset. Which that's all important to practice as well, right? That's that's the whole sequence of of, of uh, practicing that trigger manipulation. About what percentage of your dry practice time are you are you doing that? You're actually practicing your your trigger press and and everything that goes with it. Not as much as some people. I, I'd be willing to bet you that. Uh, that I, I can do as little as, as 20 repetitions a day. Okay. That takes no time at all. I'm sure you're good with that Colt Detective Special. I'm adequate with it. After all that dry practice, I bet you are. I know you say adequate, but adequate to you is, uh, for compared to what a lot of other people who really don't practice that much, is uh, miles ahead. Miles ahead. Well, I mean, a lot of that is from is from training and practicing and whatnot, and then some of it is quite honestly uh, a God-given talent, just because I'm able to mentally separate separate out the things that I'm doing. Really, talk about that. That's interesting. What, uh, what talk, talk about the mental part of it. Well, that's one of the reasons why I believe dry practice is as important as it is. It's because shooting is, is not much of a physical uh, game. Um, it, it's mental. Yeah. Uh, trusting your sight picture is mental. Focusing on that sight picture, forgetting everything else, and ignoring the, the, the recoil of the pistol so that you don't anticipate that's mm-hmm. that's mental. You're you're playing a game with your own mind. Ignoring the recoil, that's very important. Very important. I mean, it, the recoil is going to happen, and you can mitigate some of it by by your stance and your grip and and how the gun fits your hand or how how the revolver pistol fits your hand, uh, where and where you're gripping it, whatnot. But you're not going to stop the pistol from recoiling. Okay. Okay. And the only way to get around that is is the mental game. That's right. You're not uh, going to stop it from recoiling. You're going to manage it. Correct. Okay. Do you use snap caps when you are dry practicing? I have. Okay. I've used snap caps. Uh, sometimes it depends on whether the, the what I'm using has a fixed firing pin or a floating firing pin. Okay, I've I've had old timers tell me, and when I say old timer, I mean most of them are no longer with us. Uh, that the uh, the hammer fire or the the hammer mounted firing pins were a little more fragile. Okay, um, and I have seen uh, Glocks the 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 breech face of the Glock 
peed from the inside from so many dry fires that it eventually cracked. Ah, but that's, I mean, that is a lot. I that's a lot of dry fire. fire. Yeah, I, I have no idea how, how, how many that could possibly be. I, and I don't think that I've got the uh, strength, dexterity, or endurance to do that to a lot myself. And that only happens from firing it actually in in dry mode, not not dry practice, but dry fire practicing. And then on uh, on one of mine, I've I've installed uh, years back. You remember the, the Glock dry fire trigger kits? Yes. That would allow you to press the trigger and reset the trigger without uh, manipulating the slide. But there yes. was, the crucifix was cut off, uh, so that it couldn't engage the, the firing pin lug. So there, there was no way to, um, there's no way to fire around through that the pistol with that, with that trigger kit in, installed. Right. I don't know who's making them now. Uh, but, uh, they, there's been at least one or two companies that have put them out on the market before. So it sounds to me like you're practicing a lot of the mental aspect in your dry practice. Uh, I practice that. I practice reloading. I practice loading, reloading, immediate action. Mm-hmm. I've got weighted uh, nylon Palmer magazines that uh, wouldn't allow you to uh, to load around in them anyway. I've got uh, the Blade Tech. Uh, replacement barrels that are just pieces of plastic that uh, will, you know, preclude around being chambered. Um, okay. it, it all depends on, on on how deep in the weeds you, you want to go. I've I've used a student's Manus kit before, and that was very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Manus X. Yes. Yeah, I bet you like that. that. Oh, that was really neat. Of course, it gave me a lot of positive reinforcement. I was feeling like my head weighed another 10 pounds or so. (laughs) Yeah, well, we we, we don't need that. I hope it shrunk back down. (laughs) (laughs) I was able to wear my hat before I drove home. (laughs) Now, I assume you're practicing when when you dry practice. You're practicing reloading your revolver. I do that as well. Okay, good. The cool thing about the revolver was it was really easy to get on the old press and make you a, a, a couple of uh, sets of dummy rounds. Mm-hmm. That is just a, a case in a, in a projectile and no powder, no primer. And uh, if you can't remember, there's no primer in there. You can also uh, drill holes through the side of it and uh, sand that down so that you have a, a tactile remembered remembrance that that's a, a dummy round. And you can practice loading, unloading, speed loading, loading from the, the speed strips. Um, yeah. Well, John, earlier in this episode, oh, go ahead. Uh, to me, the cool thing about doing it with revolver is that a revolver is mechanical, so you're making everything on the revolver work anyway. True. True. Earlier in this episode, you said something that just popped into my mind and I want to expand on it. You said, Bob, you and I have both seen students that have screwed up the grip in classes and limp-wristed it, caused a malfunction, and they just simply weren't accurate. And that's so true. We've seen it countless times. So, you know, I, I think this is why dry practice is so important. And, and, they, and the good thing is you can do this all for free. You don't have to pay a range fee. You don't have to burn up a whole bunch of ammo. And it's it's so easy to do to, to practice, right? It is. I, I can see how it could become routine or it could get boring. Yeah. But, uh, you know, push-ups get boring to do too. Sit-ups get boring to do. Riding a bicycle or walking laps in the neighborhood, those all get boring too, but you get out there and you do it because it's, you know, makes you a better person, keeps you physically fit, uh, clears your mind. What this is another exercise. Well, you just named a whole bunch of benefits of all the boring stuff. And it's not, yeah, you did. And it's not so boring when you realize the benefits. Yeah. The push-ups are boring, 
but when you're in incredible shape and you got a lot of strength and you got a lot of stamina because of all your working out, then you look at yourself in the mirror one day and you say, hey, I like these benefits. And it seems to me the same thing happens with your dry practice shooting. One day you're going to see the benefits. You're going to realize the benefits when you go to the range. I can't argue that at all. And you yeah, just, I can't argue with that. You're going to realize um, the benefits when you go to the competition match. You're going to realize the benefits when you go to the, the class. Uh, and the most important time that you're going to realize the benefits is if you have to defend yourself. I would I would like to challenge anyone that considers himself a student of this craft to take off a week or two from shooting and just work your dry practice and dry firing drills. And there's a multitude of them that are available through do a Google search, YouTube search, what have you. Mm -hmm. There's there's, an uncountable amount and work that, that, that dry practice work, the, the, the dry fire uh, skills. And then after doing that for a week or two, then go to the range and and then you come on here and tell us, Did your skills stay the same? Did they improve or did they get worse? Now, there's a good challenge to everybody listening right now and a good challenge to me. I'm going to think about a time frame that I'm going to stay within uh, on my dry practice and I'm going to put in the reps. I'm not sure if I'm going to do John Payne 100 reps a day, but I'm going to put in some reps and I'm going to compare my results to the pass. And I'll definitely report them on this show, but I would like to invite anybody else to either interview or send me an email or a a voicemail and tell me what your results are. That's a great challenge. Good deal, Bob. I've I've had people, I've even had you ask similar questions about about how I got to where I got in as far as gun handling skills. Uh, teaching ability, what have you. Yeah. And that's exactly how I did it. Dry practicing. Dry practice and live fire, but more dry. It didn't take me very long to figure out I could be a pretty good shot. So now that I understand how how to be a good shot, um, what do I need to work on? Do I need to work on my presentation? Do I need to work on my grip? Do I need to work on making sure that I'm following the steps for proper breath control? Your draw from the holster. So, you know, what did you do right to get yourself where you wanted to be? Yeah. And then continue practicing that. Yes. Now, I have an interesting thing that I want to bring up here. So I used to be of the mindset um, that the live fire practice was more important than the dry practice. And I was of that mindset till I talked to you the other day. And then you made me realize, yeah, I I probably am not correct about that. The dry practice is is probably more important than, than the live fire practice. But at what point do you say, okay, Enough of this uh, dry practice. I got to get to the range and and I got to do some shooting. I go to the range when I want to shoot. Yeah. How often? It depends. Sometimes I get to go once a month. Sometimes I get to go once a week. (laughs) It it all depends. You know, like you said, life gets in the way. I don't get to go to the range every day. No, we, we all wish business, we could. I've got a business that I run. I've got uh, a family that I take care of. I've got all kinds of responsibilities. Um, and, and going to the range and getting in live fire practice, it's important. But it's, it's not the most important thing. You're right. And you've you after all these years, you've pretty much changed my mind on that. And... And it's it's I'm gonna I'm gonna commit to putting in more dry practice. I don't think you'll be disappointed. I, I think it's vital, and I'm going to practice a lot on my trigger press as well because that's that's normally my weak point. 
I've found out over the years, my draw is okay. It needs work. My presentation's pretty good. But pressing that trigger without moving the sights has usually been my challenge. It can be real challenging when you're excited. Of course. Yes. Yes, it can be real challenged when you're excited or under a lot of stress because you're about to lose your life. Well, sometimes you've you got to save it. Sometimes your trigger manipulation doesn't really matter that much. Really? And if you're if you're within bad breath distance of of your threat, does it matter how finely you can press that trigger? No. Are you mashing the snot out of it, getting as many rounds on the threat as you possibly can? You're mashing the snot out of it. So in that case, how? Because they're at, at at that distance, there are fundamentals that can be sacrificed, and you still remain combat effective. You're right. So how good is your draw? That's probably a lot more important in that situation. Well, how not fast just your can draw, you... but how good is your timing? How good is your timing? How good is your draw? How fast can you get the gun out? How good is your I mean, timing? I know you reviewed that video of that gentleman in the in the taco shop outside of Houston. I did. When the, the gentleman walked in uh, to commit an armed robbery and was waving the gun around. And as he walked past the guy, the guy didn't move. And he, uh, wh- what did you usually call that, Bob? Uh, surreptitious draw? I no, call it. That- I call it, well, I have my own term for it. I call it a planned pause. Um, okay. Some people, some so people he, call it a surreptitious. planned pause, and he, he quietly and smoothly accessed his firearm yeah. without drawing any attention to himself. Some people call that a surreptitious draw. Um, yeah, and it was, it was great what he did. You know, he waited, he waited for his turn because he waited for the bad guy pretty much to get beyond him. So that so that he he couldn't see him coming up on him. So his tactics were spot on. His tactics were spot on. You know, he waited till just the right moment where he had the advantage, and the bad guy. I mean, he he didn't know what was coming. Okay. That was a great uh, great video to watch. Everybody and, should watch you know, that. Within the last well, when the last twenty years, there's been at least one. Uh, poor gentleman that had a, a shotgun leveled at him and instead of trying to get out of the way of that muzzle he tried to access his, his sidearm yes and he didn't make it no and it's you know it's sad um but that that wasn't the move for that uh situation and unfortunately his mistake gave us something to learn from yeah I also believe, John, in the shooting that we had here in Texas, the one, if you remember, the one where the guy pulled out his revolver and he made like an awesome shot, like from, you know, something like 40 yards and and made a headshot or something like that. And I believe that was also a good example there of probably a guy that thought that through. I remember the one you're talking about. The officer was pinned behind the tree. Yes. With the uh, yeah, and the the elder gentleman kind of rolled out to one side or the other, and uh, older guy, yeah, and and took care of the situation, saved that officer's life. I bet that senior gentleman had thought about that, probably gone through it through in dry practice, had a plan, and he executed it. Yeah, he'd already made the decision. Yeah. In the in the middle of a fight, it's the wrong time to be making decisions. That's correct. Okay, as we begin to wrap this up, what else about dry practice do you want to let people know? Uh, just to, to develop their own routine. Like I said, there's there's information at our fingertips um, for doing the dry presentations to uh, just even to testing their gear. Yes. Testing their care gear, making sure that, that it fits properly. Um, one that feels real good for a, for a little while, and then you 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 go to work or wherever else, and you find out it's got hot spots or something else, is is, is not the best way to go. You you want to uh, to try your stuff out, make sure that it, it works properly, that it fits properly, that it supports your your carry gear. 
it is a good way to test your gear, you know, to make sure that the holster doesn't come off your belt when you're drawing it, things like that, to make sure that everything's working the way it's supposed to. And it also lets you know whether or not your holster is, is you know, making popcorn sounds when you draw or yeah. if it's silent or if it sounds like sandpaper or what have you. Uh, it, it, it gives you all kinds of information. I bet your Colt revolver coming out of that leather holster is pretty quiet. It's pretty quiet. It's pretty smooth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it should be. It needs to be. Something to be said about a good quality leather holster, isn't there? Uh, there is. And and I still have uh, uh, a, a fond attachment to, to certain brands of leather and, and, uh, and certain custom-made pieces and whatnot, but... Um, you know, I've got one of, one of the, uh, well, it's not one of the first, it can't be, but when I joined, uh, Suarez early on, I, uh, I bought a, a sneaky belt, the mm-hmm. urban tactical fighting belt. Mm-hmm. And so I've had that, I've had that belt for 13 years. Wow. Uh, a leather belt wouldn't make it that long being worn practically every day. Your sneaky belt still working well? It's still working well. Some of the Velcro is starting to kind of wear. Yeah. And I can always find someone to uh, with the proper uh, tools to uh, put on some, some new uh, Velcro, the hook yeah. and loop faster. But but uh, as far as the actual uh, nylon itself and the buckle and everything, oh, yeah, it's in perfect condition. It uh, still fits perfectly, wears comfortably, supports my gear, whether it's outside the waistband or inside the waistband. It's just, it doesn't go real well with a suit and tie. <laughs> no, no. But I don't believe those belts are sold anymore, are they? I honestly couldn't tell you. Um, I think there's been some, some folks uh, bringing them back before. I don't know if, if that's still continued or not. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, I know that I'm going to have to try to research find another belt like it because it's, it's counterintuitive. You wouldn't think that it would... Uh, support your gear as well because it's not lined with anything it's almost like you've got a a, a, a tactical belt made out of a seat belt yeah cool it is uh, that's as long as it supports your gear properly it doesn't matter what it's made of or how it's made well uh, this is just i mean as far as carrying the gear and, and, and being comfortable is is just way beyond uh, some of the other brands that I've used or still use at different times that have the uh, the rigid uh, liner in the center of it and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They call that Kydex lined or polymer lined. Okay. John, thanks for coming on and talking about dry practice. This is good stuff. Oh, you're welcome, Bob. This is real good stuff. I think I made it through another episode without saying absolutely. <laughs> I was waiting. I was waiting, and you did not give me the pleasure to do that, uh, to laugh you about know, that. I don't like doing it. <laughs> you did not give me the, the ability to laugh, except for right now you did. <laughs> that, it's I, always a good conversation, Bob. I think I need to go back to your very first interview with me and, and count how many times that you said absolutely. I, <laughs> I, I, if I can find that episode, and I'll text you, I'll count it up. It might be a good chuckle. <laughs> you know, I, it, yeah, it irritated me the very first time I heard myself. <laughs> and then, of course, I, you know, I listened to all your other guests and, and try to and try to catch them doing the same thing. It's, it's, I guess, you could consider it to be a verbal pause. Well, people, they say absolutely. They say exactly. You know, the one that gets me is when everybody says right. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. You're right. Right. Yeah. And they say right about a thousand times during the interview. That one drives me up a wall, right? I bet it can. Yeah. And then you slipped another one in there. I probably in this episode said right many times, but I try to limit it Um, when I listen to especially the person doing the interviewing, the, the interviewer. And always says right to the interviewee, especially like when they're agreeing. You know, the the interviewee, the guest will say something 
and and the, and the host will say, right, right. Oh, yeah, I'm picking up what you're putting down. I'm just trying not to say the R word. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Okay. There's all kinds of little weird things like that. I mean, there, there's times when my mouth is going faster than my brain. Yes, that happens to all of us. Or I think back to the courses that I took in, in public speaking and trying not to hit the verbal pauses as far as and again. Yes. You know, one of the hardest things to do, I was a professional public speaker for seven and a half years. I made a very good living doing it back in the day. Um, I mean, way back in the day. And I learned the hard way. I never took a never took a public speaking class in my life. I learned just from getting up there and making mistakes. And those verbal pauses are killers. They're killers. And the the biggest verbal pause that people make is, uh, well, um, um, uh, yes, that's the verbal pause. As as well as, or it might be something similar to, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Exactly. Or what I just said there, you know, you know. You know. You know, a lot of people overuse you know. And <laughs> <laughs> that one really drives We could me. do a whole podcast just on this. No one would listen to us, but we could do a whole <laughs> podcast just on this. We might get six or seven li- listeners. It's like Cullen. I don't know if Cullen will hear this or not. I bet you he probably will. Oh, okay. Cullen, what was the one oh, he can't stand? Oh, yes. I could care less. Oh, really? How much less could you care? <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to be I couldn't care less. Correct. And people say, oh, I could care less. That is correct. That's one that that kind of drives me up, uh, up a wall a little bit, too. I could care less. <laughs> Here's another one. A hot water heater. <laughs> well, yeah, it's a water heater. It's supposed to make the water hot. <laughs> well, but in Southeast Texas, we call it a hot water heater. Yeah, and, yeah. of course, any type of carbonated beverage is a Coke. Of course. Carbonated beverages are Cokes. They all are. And any- well, Would you like a Coke? Hey, baby, what kind of Coke do you want? We have Sprite. We have 7-Up. And any kind of a copier or any kind of a copy is a Xerox. It's called a Xerox. Xerox. Yes. Yes. Back in the day, one of my first. I promise you, Bob, somewhere it's got to be documented that Xerox, as far as brand recognition, has to be right there with Rolex. And Rolex is like in the top three in the world, even if they don't care about the watch itself or the timepiece, whatever you want to call it. They still have heard of a Rolex, and they know the alleged quality and luxury of that piece. I would say the most recognized brand is Coke. I would think it might be a little, little bit more recognized. You're right. A little bit more than Xerox and Rolex, but you make a good point about Xerox, Rolex, Coke. Yeah, everything is, it's one of those. And then after you define it as a Coke, like you said, then you define it as what kind of a Coke it is. What kind of a Rolex is it or what kind of a Xerox copy? What kind of a According to me, machine the media, made you know, Every firearm is either a Glock, an AR, or an AK. Yes, that's true. That's true. All handguns are Glocks. Yeah, and and according to the anti-gunners, uh, everything's an assault rifle. Everything. Yeah, that's that that's nice. Everything's an assault rifle, and everything is an evil handgun, and shouldn't be shouldn't be used. Yeah. Words matter. You're right. Over, I got a rifle over here in my office. It must be defective, or it's awful lazy. Well, you know, this reminds me, we'll close with this. When I first started doing podcasts, one of the guys I used to listen to that I liked so much is is Eric Shelton. He had the Handgun Podcast. And yes. I did not copy his name at that time. A lot of people thought that I did, but I got the name of my show not from Eric. I got Handgun World from a different place, and, and I'll explain that one day. But I loved the way Eric opened his show. If handguns cause crime, mine's defective. 
He opened his show with that every time, and it's that's one of the best lines I've ever heard, right? I, I believe so. <laughs> and you said the R word again, but uh, I, I had to slip that in there. <laughs> <laughs> it's this all is, good. It's, it's all great, good. John. I don't even. I mean, I, I I really don't care if they believe that, which they don't. It's disingenuous at best that that you know that these firearms commit crimes. But uh, I know that we have people that, that do need to go out there and, and fight the good fight and debate, but I'm done debating them on, on my rights. Well, and I think that anybody with a lick of common sense understands that the firearms don't cause the crimes. And the most important words I said in that statement was a lick of common sense because it's only the people who – don't have any that that think that way i think and it's a shame they still call it common sense because if it was common everyone would have it common sense ain't so common it is not (laughs) john thanks for coming on i like the way this show ended i don't know if anybody else is laughing but it sure made good humor for you and i well we all know (laughs) that that guns don't cause crime and uh turning a bull into a steer doesn't make it a cow Ooh. Now, I've never heard that one before. That's good. I'm sure I stole it from somebody. That's good. That's really good. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. we got to do this again and not wait so darn long. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Thanks, buddy. All right. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. John, thank you very much. I appreciate you giving us your time. Um, I should have put a warning on this that says, listen at your own risk. (laughs) So I'm sorry that I did not do that. I hope that you enjoyed what we put together, especially the little sequence that we did the last five or ten minutes. Let me know what you think. If you want to send an email at that address, is handgunworld at gmail.com. Once again, handgunworld at gmail.com. You can still leave a voicemail on the show if you want. I still use that. 210-646-1727. 210-646-1727. There will be a link on Facebook and on Twitter, or I guess i got to start now calling it X instead of calling it Twitter. Enough said. Thanks very much for listening. Remember, this is another episode of the Handgun World Podcast. I would like you to shoot straight, shoot safe, and read your Bible every day. Goodbye. Goodbye.